be starting the book of Exodus, which is where we're going to be this morning. Um, because it, as we were talking about this with the leadership team, we were kind of feeling like after walking through a season of asking these questions like, what does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to be the people of God? Uh, where should we be going? What should we be doing? You were kind of left with this question of, but what does that look like, right? And, and really what we're asking is the question, what does it look like to be the people of God? If, if we are going to be gathered here as a church family at Pepper's Ferry, uh, here in Christiansburg, right in the middle of, of Radford and Blacksburg and Tech and Radford and New River and all these, these different places, what does it look like for us to be the people of God? And I realized we, we could go through the book of Acts because that's the story of the early church. Uh, we talked about with the leadership team, and um, you guys had shared that that was actually a Bible study you guys had done fairly recently on Sunday mornings. And so I said, well, if we don't want to go through the book of Acts, we could go through the Old Testament version of the book of Acts, which is a longer book. And it's a more, you may have to dig a little bit more into the story to see what God is trying to show us. But church, I am excited to get to walk with you through the book of Exodus. Exodus is the story of the people of God. So just to give you a little bit of, of the background of why Exodus is so cool and why we're going to get to go through this book. Exodus starts right where Genesis ends. Kind of naturally, the books go right next to each other. At the end of Genesis, you see a man named Joseph being reunited with his family. And if you've heard the story of Joseph, he's the one that had 12 brothers and then had these dreams about, oh, I'm going to be the favorite son. And the brothers didn't like that, so they sold him into slavery. And then he's living as a slave of, in Egypt and eventually works his way up to be I think number two over the kingdom right next to Pharaoh, and then there's a famine, and he's able to provide food for his family, and then he, he reveals who he is to his brothers. And so in Genesis chapter 50, there's this, this like big old family reunion that takes place. And then at the end of Genesis 50, the father, Jacob, dies. And, and Joseph's brothers are thinking, you know, Joseph may have only been being nice to us because dad was still alive and he wanted to give the appearance that the family was still together. But now that Jacob's gone, he, Jacob might not know that we were the ones who sold him into slavery. We, uh, he may want some revenge on us. And so Joseph's brothers go to Joseph and they're, they're kind of wary of how he's going to treat him. And Joseph makes this statement in Genesis 50, 19 through 20. He says, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring, about that, uh, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Basically, th this idea that what God does is bring life. And it's the same at the end of Genesis in chapter 50 as in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Throughout the whole book, we are given this story of how God is life, how God has created life. And because he's made us in his image, you know, he, he has given us life. And then in Genesis, you see how we've been broken apart from that life. And so there's this need for being restored, being made right with God. And that, that is on display throughout the entire book of Genesis. And, and this thing that runs along our need for restoration throughout Genesis is the story of the covenant. This, this, this deal that God makes is to way of saying, you, my people who I made for life with me, you've been broken apart from me. 
And so let me show you what I'm going to do to make you right with me again. This, this covenant that God introduces, it, it comes up first in, in the life of Abraham, and then he brings it throughout Abraham's descendants, one of which is, is Joseph. And, and so the people that we are going to be reading about, the Israelites in the book of Exodus, these are the people of the covenant. These are the people that God's righteousness, the, the ability to be right with him, has been passed down to. So church, we can kind of read ourselves in as the Israelites. You know, those of us here who, if we have this relationship with God, if we have been restored to him, we're gathered here and we're asking, what do I do? Like, what, is it, what does it mean for me to, to me to be a child of God? And that is exactly where the book of Exodus goes. So we're, we're going to see today, uh, our, our main point is, and, and this, is, this is the main point of Exodus 1, but church, this is really the main point of the entire book, okay? So we're going to kind of keep coming back to this idea as we move through the book, but that God is faithful to restore his creation, and if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear me on this, church. God is faithful to restore his creation. That's the first part. And the second part, we as his people are called to trust that. We are called to trust God's restorative work. We're going to see it in three different pictures in Exodus chapter 1. Uh, and, and really, this is... This is Moses' main concern. I'm going to do my best not to get bogged down in some of the details because you know, as I was reading this this week, church, there was, there was a lot of different directions we could take this. But this idea that God is faithful to restore his creation and we are called to trust that restorative work, this is kind of Moses' main idea as he's transitioning now from the end of the narrative in Genesis and picking up with the people of God in the book of Exodus. So let's, let's read together the entire first chapter, and then we'll, we'll walk back through it, and we'll, we'll show this idea that God is faithful to restore, and we, we're called to trust that. So this is Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation, they, they died. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's go deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called them back in and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. There's three different shifts that the people of, of God walk through in, in this passage. The, the first shift is in the first seven verses where you have an entire generation of people who knew God and who followed God. They passed away. The second shift is in verses 8 through 14, and it's, it's a new king comes into power. And he, he doesn't know who God is. He doesn't know who, who God's people are. He sees this massive group of people living in the country, and he puts them into slavery. And then the, sh the third shift in verses 8 through 15 is this command given to the midwives that instead of, you know, helping the babies live, they're now to kill all of the males. So in, in each of these shifts, which you, if, if you need to maybe think of it in a bigger picture, you've got death, you've got persecution, you've got injustice and, and oppression, okay? Three major shifts in the life of God's people, and in all of these, Moses consistently teaches this main point that we've talked about, that God is faithful to restore his creation and his people are called to trust his restorative work. So the way we see this, this first theme, God is faithful to restore his creation, look then uh, at the first seven verses. Okay? These are the names of Jacob or of Joseph and all his brothers. Right? These are the sons of, of Jacob. We see that they have now settled in the land of Egypt. Uh, we know from, from the book of Genesis, they're, they're farmers, uh, they're sheep herders. They kind of tend to the land. They don't necessarily live in uh, Egypt. They're, they're the, the, the main big cities there. They're kind of on the outskirts, so kind of like living here with Roanoke being the, the big city. This, this is kind of where the people of God are at this point. And we see Moses gives us this commentary, which is going to come up key later, that they're, they're 70 in number. Okay, this is, this is the first five verses. The first shift comes in verse 6. Then Joseph died. So Joseph, the faithful brother, the one who knew of God's promises, probably better than the rest of them, and all his brothers, and that whole generation, all, all 70 of them, they, they naturally passed on. And what happens next in verse 7 is, is maybe not what I would expect. Okay, may, maybe you guys are different. Maybe it, it makes sense to you. But I would not expect, if you're going to tell me that the whole generation died off, that the very next words you say are, but the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That is, it doesn't make sense to me how you would make that leap and go there next. But I, I realize, church, that that verse that you then also hear two other times in this chapter, Moses is trying to clue us into something. That should, that should say, whom I, I think I've heard that somewhere before. And where you've heard that before is in Genesis 1, 28, where right after God makes mankind, he gives them the charge. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God's purpose 
in making mankind to be fruitful, to multiply, to, to bear his image in abundance on this earth. You see right here, right after saying the whole generation of faithful people died off, the very next statement, but God's purpose still lives on. God's covenant still lives on. And, and, and this has been the whole story through Genesis. Like we said in, in Genesis 3, you, you, that we have been broken apart from God, that we, we don't like this life with God. We don't want to bear his image. We would rather go bear our own image. We see that, that God begins this covenant of, okay, but but my work is still going to continue through you in Genesis 12. He, he tells Abraham, Abraham, who was then Abram, he says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It's, this is the covenant promise. It's, it's pointing Abraham back to the very beginning where God says, yes, but what I have made you to do in bearing my image, it will be done. I will strengthen you. I will equip you. I will make sure my image is, is born before my people. And so all throughout Genesis and right here at the beginning of Exodus, even in death, church, something that we all struggle with, something that we all face in our lives and in our family members' lives, even in death, God has still, consider, God has still carried out his covenant of restoration. God is still faithful to restore. So even when we, we face this, this, this shift of life on earth into death, and we feel like that surely would be something that would, would cause me to wrestle with my existence and why am I here and what am I doing, God says, even in this, I am still faithful to restore my creation. I am still bringing new life. I am still bringing you back into life with me. So that's over death. And the second shift over persecution, you see now in, in verse 8 that there's a new king who comes to power who did not know Joseph. He didn't know who Joseph was, didn't know who the people of God were, didn't know who this God was that they followed. In verse 9 through 11, you see that he's intimidated by the number of, of people, uh, the Israelites that are living in Egypt. So what he does is he puts them under slavery. He says, if you're going to live here and I don't know who you are, you're, you're going to work. For me, and, and not only do they work for him, but you see in these verses, it's, it's pretty brutal. Um, the word ruthless comes up, I think, three times in this passage. Ruthless. They were horrible to the people of God. You see in verses 13 and 14, they're making them build these store cities. So they're, they're farming the land. Then they're building the storehouses for the crops to go into. Then they're harvesting. I mean, they're doing everything at this point. And yet... Look at verse 12. In this shift, with, with horrific persecution going on, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So just as God just showed through Moses, hey, even in death, death cannot stop this covenant of restoration. Death cannot stop me making new life, bringing people back into life with me. God now shows through Moses, and neither can persecution. Even in the picture of God's people being brutally oppressed in slavery, God says, I will still be faithful to restore my creation. And church, it is, it's mind-blowing to think about this, but, but Moses made the comment earlier that all of Joseph and his brothers and his families, they numbered 70 people. 
Okay, so, so in the span of, of a, a short time, about a generation, right? Because the new king doesn't know Joseph, the previous king did. So about in one generation, the people of God go from 70 to such a large number. I mean, like, can we imagine if 70 people came to, to this country and in that short amount of time, there were so many of them that we would be like, man, that's, that's a big number of people. I, I mean, Pharaoh, Pharaoh knows there's only 70, but they have so grown that he's now intimidated by them. Like, church, not, not only is God's covenant being carried out, it's being carried out in, in miraculous ways that the people of God have flourished facing death and facing persecution. They flourished to the point where the world is noticing. Now, they're noticing and, and they're, they're persecuting them, which is not okay on, on so many levels, but they are seeing God's covenant carried out in such a clear way that they're no longer able to ignore it anymore. That even when faced with persecution, God is still able and he is faithful to restore his people to a right relationship with him. And the same thing again shows up in this last shift here in the, in the command to the midwives. We see that Pharaoh uh, provides, and this was kind of the, the cultural norm at the time, that Pharaoh provided midwives for, for his people, you know, to, as they were giving birth to, to be assisted in the process. And so he's provided midwives for the Hebrew people, the Israelites, and two of them are named here. And he calls these midwives, and we're assuming these two are named because they were you know, probably in charge of taking Pharaoh's instructions and going to give it to the rest of the midwives. But he tells them, when you serve as a midwife, you are to kill all of the baby boys. Which is, I don't even have words to describe how, how horrible that is. I mean, one of the commentators I was reading was talking about how, like, it if we ever feel like we have some sort of faith in humanity and what we're able to do, here's a guy who is able to go to the women who were, you know, the most trusted women of the time because they're working with women in their most vulnerable moment, childbirth. They're supposed to be helping women bring life into the world and they're being commanded to cut it off right there at the source. I, I, I mean, this is, it, it's horrible. Church, it is, it is horrific to think about. And then I, as we study this more, though, I realized, do you guys remember, and this is more of a little rabbit trail, but I promise it's relevant. Do you remember from Ephesians chapter 6, when we talked, this was two weeks ago, we said that our battles are not flesh and blood, but they're also, they're spiritual battles, okay? One of the things that we see at the very beginning of Genesis and in chapter 3, when man and God are separated for the first time. God makes this, this statement uh, where he puts, and the, the word there is enmity, which means hostility or, or opposition between the offspring of the serpent, between the devil and the offspring of Eve, which would be mankind. So God, when he when we fell away from God, we've entered into this broken relationship with one another in addition to being broken apart from God, right? We, we, we wrestle with sin in our lives. And in Genesis 3, we scholars say that this is kind of the first place that you see Jesus show up. Because God 
tells Adam and Eve when they're separated from him and they're, they're put at odds even with, with themselves that there will be a descendant of Eve who will come and who will crush the head of the serpent. Basically, that some, some Messiah will come through the line of mankind to be able to save all the people from the brokenness that they face. And so scholars will say, no, this, this is pointing all the way into the future towards Jesus, who we know being in, well, we know it's tr- the truth, we, it, it's tough to... It, conceptualized, but how Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he is the one who has fulfilled the role of coming through through us to make our restoration possible. So in the command to kill all of the male baby boys, it's an attempt to keep the Messiah from coming. Because, I mean, you, you can order, kill all the males, kill all the females, you're not going to be able to multiply You're not going to be able to grow. You're not going to be able for the nation to to continue onward. So it is a horrific picture that we just can't wrap our minds around physically. But it is a picture spiritually of, of the hostility that our sin has put between us and God. That it would lead us to the point of doing something to prevent the Messiah from coming. To try and prevent the Messiah from coming, which so I, I apologize for the rabbit trail church, but it, it is amazing in scripture. You know, sometimes when things just don't make sense physically, to look at it through the lens of other scripture and see, wow, that's really the depth of my depravity. That that really describes my relationship to God. As as much as I feel like I may know Him or He's not that big of a deal, I am capable of such hostility towards the one who has given us life. And even in this picture, church, what do we see in these verses? Right after that command, you see the midwives feared God. And so they end up not obeying the Pharaoh's orders. They spare the lives of the baby males. And in verses 20 through 21, again, you see the covenant language right there. God, dwelt, God dealt well with the midwives... In verse 20, the people grew very strong. They continue to multiply the same promise. Verse 21, now God even gives that promise to the midwives. He says, because of your faithfulness, now this covenant blessing is going to be upon you. Church, even in injustice, even in oppression, even in the spiritual war that we we face, God is still faithful to restore his creation. And I don't know where many of you may be at this morning, but, but I know that death, persecution, and injustice are things we face on this world because we've been broken apart from God. Our relationships with one another are not right. We, we persecute, we, we oppress, we, we face injustice, we, we face death as a result of being broken apart from God. But, but no matter which one of those are, or anything else that you may be going through this morning, church, it does not change the fact that God is faithful. God is always faithful to us to make this reconciliation possible, to make it able for us to be made in a right relationship with him. So how we're called to respond to this is, is also the second common thread that Moses has in these verses, and that's we are to trust that. 
and it feels like church, and this is where I really wrestled with, with studying this text this week, it feels like we should be called to do something more, right? Like if we face death, oppression, persecution, like shouldn't we be more active than we, we are? And, and I, I realized it, it's, it's, it's very interesting. You don't see in this text what the people of God are doing. You don't see how they're wrestling with the death of all of their ancestors. You don't see how they're responding to all this oppressive work. You, you will see it in the next chapter, but Moses hasn't gotten there yet because that's not his main point. Moses is really showing, the, the only response you see is that the people are faithful to live out the covenant blessing. They're continuing to multiply, continuing to grow. And the midwives feared God. So it's, it's not a call for us to do nothing as Christians, but it is a call for us to understand what is our primary response, and that is to trust God's restorative work. In verse 7, you know, just go back and look through each of these, these covenant verses. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong when presented with death. They still lived out what they knew God had given them to do which was to bear his image, to be fruitful, to multiply, to, to show to the rest of the world what does it look like. like who is God? What is, what is he like? You see, even in, in persecution, by putting into slavery, being made to work in horrific conditions, just doing, working themselves to the point of death, you see in verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. They continue to bear God's image out. Church, that, that is a statement of trust, that, that, that you would be in that position and still continue to live that out. In the, the third shift, you see the same thing. That, in fact, Moses makes it very clear here. He says the midwives feared God. This Old Testament idea of fearing God is, is it, when we think about fear, Halloween is right around the corner. Fear to us is something scary, right? We don't really know what it is, so we're kind of terrified of what it could do to us. That's, there's the same base concept is in there when you're talking about the fear of God, but it's a little bit more than that. It's fearing God is the same. It's similar to language of trust, of, of respect, of, of awe. It really, it's, it's kind of us looking at God and saying, God, if that is all of who you are, and if you are really doing all the things that you have promised you're going to do, God, I believe you. God, you are so much bigger than me. God, you are the Lord of my life, and I can't help but live in what you have given me to do. So when you see that the midwives are fearing God, they know what we've seen throughout Genesis. God is a God of life. God is a God who, who creates life, who brings life, and God is a God who restores life because we are broken people. God restores life. So the midwives know God is a God of life. God is a God of restoring life. I've been given a command to take life, so I can't do that. So something about who God is and they trusting, knowing what he is at work doing allows them to withstand the things that they face. And because the midwives feared God, Moses is very clear. He says God gave them families. These, these women were not necessarily Hebrew 
they weren't necessarily Israelites, meaning at that time they, they probably weren't considered part of the people of God. But because they fear him, now God's blessing of restoration covers them. You know, earlier I said that when we look throughout this book of Exodus, you know, that this really applies to, to when we are here this morning as a church body with a relationship to God, right? That, that we read this going, this is the story of those who have been reconciled to God. What does it look like? But here we also kind of get the first picture of, but it's not an exclusive thing. Because as people understand, I have been broken apart from God. God desires me to be right with him. God has made that way possible for, for us through Jesus Christ. Now the covenant extends to them as well. So this is just as much in an evangelistic thing as it is a, a discipleship thing. So how we respond to this. If, if, if all of this is true, that, that God is a God of restoration that God is always faithful to restore his creation, that there's, there's nothing that takes place on this earth that stops God from being able to make his people and make everyone right with him. And if it's true that we are called to just to trust that he is at work, what do we do? I think there's, there's two things from this specific chapter that, that Moses is, is setting before us. The first is identifying and accepting the brokenness in our lives and in our world. Church, if, if all of this is true, that God cares about restoration and that we are trusting he's restoring, restoration implies brokenness, right? You can't make something right again that's not broken to begin with. And, and trust me, I don't think we have any problem calling out where other people and other things are broken. But it is often very difficult for us to do that in our own lives. It's, it's tough for us to consider how our brokenness is a contributing factor to the things that, that we see around us. And, and, and where, where this is coming from to me, too, is, is just thinking, you know, there's, there's certain people, there's certain groups at times in our, in our world, even sometimes our neighbors, that when they, you know, you just hear them speak, you just hear them share their beliefs, and, and something within you just wants to get really defensive, and your blood starts to kind of boil, and you... And, and we, we almost believe as Christians that my anger towards what somebody else thinks is a righteous anger because I'm a Christian. And if I'm following Jesus, I'm feeling angry about something that it's, it's out of a place of self-righteousness almost. And, and I think if we are the people of God called to trust that God is at work with storing us, and if we have to admit that we are also broken people, <laughs> maybe our reactions are because we are broken. Not because we're righteous. We, we do not default to righteous. The people of God in this chapter, whatever they were facing, they were just called to trust. And because they were trusting God, they were living out the promise that he had given them. So church, I think it is, it is very big for us as the people of God. We have to identify and accept where are we broken. Yes, people do horrific things. But I, in my brokenness, how am I contributing to, to what I see around me? Because realistically, I probably don't get angry out of being self-righteous. I get angry because I'm also broken. I get angry at other brokenness because I struggle with brokenness myself. And if we want to see God do a restorative work in our world, if we want to see God do a restorative work in us, we have to be able to admit where we are also 
broken. And again, earlier we see, you know, this is not just a call. Trust is not a passive calling, okay? The call to trust something does not mean you just sit back and do absolutely nothing. So what are we called to do? The second, you know, thing that Moses is is really emphasizing in this chapter, pursue God's restoration. Pursue being made right with God. Moses is going to talk next week Maybe a couple weeks. If, I forget exactly where in Exodus. But you, you do see the people of God start to kind of grumble and complain against the situation that they're in. Okay, They're, they're not just told to be silent and, and, and just to take it. They, they do wrestle. But at this point in the story, Moses doesn't, doesn't give that insight because he's saying that, that's really way later on in the picture, the primary response of of pursuing. What are we doing is pursuing God's restoration. It's amazing. I mean, even throughout the story, and and we will see this as we go throughout the next 10 chapters or so, uh, not all right now, in the coming weeks. But as you go through, what, what you don't see is you don't really see the people fighting back against the Egyptians. You don't really see them, like, taking a stand because of what's happening to them is wrong. And church, what is happening to the people of God in the book of Exodus right here is wrong. Okay? They're enslaved. They're being told to have their offspring killed. That is wrong. And yet, it is a picture also of what we see in Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, For the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross. He scorned its shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And when I read that this week in in relation to this, I started thinking about, you know, how often in scripture do I see Jesus either kind of like like fighting against the earthly authorities who are after him or or like or correcting, rebuking the I mean I mean purely earthly authorities. Jesus definitely had a lot of rebuke for the religious authorities, but the earthly authorities that didn't understand who he was and came after him. How often did you see Jesus riling the crowd up, you know, to, to get them angry to step in and, and make Jesus physically the king on earth? It, it's it's not there. Because what you see, Hebrews 12, 2 is the summary for the joy set before him that Christ knew what God had given him to do and he trusted that restorative work to the degree that he endured the cross. He didn't stand up to the cross. He didn't take away the cross. He endured the cross. And in doing so, he made our restoration possible. So church, if you and I are to be made right with God, Our primary response is to trust God is who he says he is. He is at work in the ways that he has told us he's at work. And so if we allow him to restore us and trusting him means he can show us where we get to join in this work. Trust is not a passive calling. But it gets us in the position of saying, God, you are the one at work. You are the one that I'm living for and and you will lead me to know how to respond. So ways to respond this week, church, it's these two things uh, that that we've just talked about. To to identify and admit brokenness in your life and, uh, you know, just to say, 
Spend some time this week. Hey, God, you know, and some questions I think that would be helpful for this. God, when I hear this person or if I hear this group start talking about this thing and it riles me up, you know, identify where that comes from, church. It's, you know, know, know what stirs you up, what really gets you mad about something, okay? Because, and, and this week, maybe instead of thinking it's self-righteousness that I should stand against this, maybe it's a way of pointing, man, where am I broken? Lord, if I'm having such a hard time with this, what does that say about me? What does that say about, you know, where, where do I also struggle with this? Or, Lord, if I don't struggle with this, I struggle somewhere else. Where, where am I broken? Because it's when we admit that we're broken that we're able to be restored. And the second thing I would encourage you guys to do this week, as we're, we're working through this, ask God to make us right with him and to show us where we can be active, right? If, if God has called us to trust him, one of the biggest things we do, church, and, and I, I say this not as one who does this well, one of the biggest things we can do to show God we trust him is to pray. It is our way of communicating with God, of saying, God, I see this to be true. God, make this true in my life. It's, it's very easy for us to go and serve, but, but to stop and to pray, it humbles us to the point of trusting God. So as, you, as you're thinking about, man, where, where am I broken? What do I wrestle with this week? Instead of getting riled up and defensive, stop and pray, which is what we will do right now as John and the worship team come and, and lead us in, in one final song together. Lord, we see from, from Moses, your servant in this book, God, the, the story of you forming your people on earth. And God, the, the formation of your people on earth we see this morning, it begins with acknowledging that you are the God who restores. You are the God that is always faithful. God, we have broken apart from you. God, we do not deserve to have this life with you because we, we, we spurned it. We got rid of it at the very beginning, right after you gave it to us. Lord, we, we see that you have made us to, in the, the lives that we have, in the families that we have, the jobs we have, in the literal places we live, in the way we drive our cars, Lord, you have called us to bear your image. God, we recognize this morning that we do not do that well. But God, we, we, we know that you are a God who restores and you are a God who has called us to trust you are restoring. Lord, we, we, are, we are so, I think of the, the song, we are prone to wander, Lord. We, we're prone to leave you. We, we feel like we just have to jump in at, at every moment. God, you are at work. You made our salvation possible in your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. You've told us that, that when we, we submit to him as Savior and Lord, we're sealed with the Spirit. God, you carry us through this life on earth to, to bring us into life with you. God, just may we trust that this week as we go from here. In your holy name we pray. Amen.